0: Hello, my dear listeners and viewers, this is me, Leila, and my Sincerely Leila podcast. Welcome to the first episode of 2024. Today, I have a special guest, Mary Effendi. She's an author from Azerbaijan, Baku. If you guys don't know, but I think everyone knows because I always mention it, I'm also Azerbaijani, and I wasn't born in Azerbaijan, but my father was born there, so I love my native motherland, I always feel proud to represent it, and I always am happy to introduce other talented people from my ethnic motherland. So, Mary's book, her debut novel, um, became my first book of 2024 as well. I finished it this year, and I absolutely loved it. The book is called I Sat Alone by the Gate, and it was released in the summer 2023. So it's still new and you still have your chance to read it. And I really hope that after listening to this podcast, you will definitely want to pick up this book and find out more about the main character, Mariam. We talked a lot with Mary about her life in the US and how this novel, although is based on her life, um, there are parts that were fictionalized. Um, So it's very interesting to get to know part of writing from a writer herself, a published author, because one thing is to write a book, another is to publish it. And Mary explains it all in this interview. I also interviewed her as a journalist for the magazine that I work for, The Caspian Post. So it will be more personal um, for the article, but this podcast... It's kind of like a chat between us. And I'm also sharing my experience as an immigrant, as a Muslim woman. So it's a lot of topics. And that's why I love podcasts, because you don't always know where it's going to go, because it's life. Like, you just share your experiences, your thoughts. So if you just want to find out more about Mary, definitely read the article about her that I will write by the time this podcast is up. I will leave the link in the bio, in the description. (laughs) This is not Instagram. Um, But otherwise, I think we talked so much in this podcast that it should be definitely enough for you to get to know her more. But I'm gonna add that Mary's life is very interesting as an immigrant because she moved to the US at the age of... 18 if I'm not mistaken and then she's been there 20 years and she moved back to Baku a year ago and she shares her experience in this podcast as well so definitely um, listen if you want to find out more and without further ado let's just start because I'm sure it's gonna be a long one and you just want to get to it don't you so Mary Effendi welcome hi Mary So happy to have you on my podcast. You're actually the first guest of this year. so And you're the first Azerbaijani on my podcast. And my podcast is not that long uh, to have more guests. So it's like everything is for the first time. But I'm so grateful that you accepted my invitation. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here as well. In fact, um, I've always wanted to be on a podcast. This is my first one. So in that sense, a little dream came true uh, first in 2024. So I'm super excited to be here. Um thank you for inviting me. It's an honor.
0: For me as well. And actually my first question is do you prefer to be called Mary or Mehriban, which is your Azerbaijani name, official name?
1: I've always been called Mary even when I lived here.
0: Um so I think I think Mary is good. Okay, just to make sure cuz I hate when people cannot pronounce like ethnic names, and they're just like, I'll just call you like Tom or whatever, you know, because it's easier. So I always, especially because I'm Azerbaijani, I can say Mihriban, it's no problem for me, but I want to make sure that (laughs) you're okay with it as well.
1: No, I, I don't know which one's worse when they try to name you something else or when they butcher your name because they just can't pronounce it. And with a name like Mihriban for 20 years in the US, trust me i'm so glad i'm so glad i didn't have to pick a name mary was actually my nickname when i was here as well but um but you know i know they have the best intentions but sometimes i don't think they can manage the sound they just stop there (laughs) so so mary has saved me Uh, i was going to publish it under my full name because i felt like you know that's my full name and as an author i'd like to be known with my Azeri name and then it turns out that there is a very famous painter Uh, and the marketing team of my publishing company, they said, you know, if you Google made Fendi for first 10 pages on Google, it's going to be this painter. And I also paint. So it gets really confusing. And your, uh, your readers, if they really like your book, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to Google you and they're going to see this other woman that has a similar painting style. So we suggest you go with Mary. And so that's how that decision was made I think it really grew on me and I kind of accepted it as my, as my pen name, even though my illegal name is Mehriban. But that was the reason why we went with Mary, because otherwise it would have been very difficult to differentiate between me and her.
0: Oh, interesting. So actually, uh, for those who are watching this podcast, Mary is in her studio in Old Town, right? In iceri in Baku. I
1: moved. Ah, oh, okay. Still not very far from iceri but yeah, this is, this is the home for all my paintings now there here this is the one i'm working on right now it's not done yet that is the famous cat the cat that's on the cover
0: i i love your painting style like actually like i read from your um about the author part in your book that you have a studio in it had so i was like oh she paints as well but i had no idea your paintings are so beautiful and so unique
1: thank you they i uh, you know
0: it's a gift of the pandemic we all started doing something the pandemic, so really? i haven't i haven't been painting for a long time i just started because
1: we were all going a little crazy at home stuck okay.
0: <laughs> with the kids so do you also write in the studio or is it only for painting
1: you know writing for me is i want to be very honest i don't want to um i don't want to give false ideas around how I write because along with being a writer, I'm a mom and really I don't have the luxury to pick a certain place where I write. I love to have a routine, but it's like the last thing you get to, to have with kids because everything is so chaotic. So I write wherever I can. And it's much more driven by time and time of the day than place. Um, when i was writing the book i picked a certain time which was saturdays it was the day when um i didn't work and my husband could help take care of the kids and so i realized that the optimal time for me to be gone to still you know be present at home was very early morning i'm also a morning person um so the first goal was to find the right time which for me was somewhere between 5 am and 1 pm The second thing was to find a place that's open, which in the U.S. is like only Starbucks and some other coffee shops that open super early. I don't know why I was the only person there, but um, it's not about where I write. It's where when can I get away from my kids so I can write ends up being early morning um, some very often because I'm more productive. But Mm -hmm. I've had some sessions where, you know, I write it's 9 p.m. My eyes are closing, but I need to like finish the chapter before I Go to bed.
0: Are you working on anything right now? Literary?
1: Yeah, I um I have several projects that all came to me um after I moved back to Baku a year ago. One of them is related to historical fiction. Um my debut novel is really dedicated to the immigrant experience, so it has a very the theme is really about emotional struggle um feeling of belonging it's not really a historical fiction but historical fiction is something that i really enjoy reading and when i came back here and started reconnecting reconnecting with some of the family members that are older i realized that there's a huge chunk of history for azerbaijan that has not been told because in that period, sharing stories came with consequences. So we're talking about stories of repression. We're talking about poets and intellectuals being exiled or killed or imprisoned. And I don't think those stories were shared because it was a time where the little, the, the less you knew, the better, the safer you were um and the people that know these stories they are like 80 years old 90 years old so i started interviewing um that generation and gathering little stories that's my way of writing it's like collecting little pieces of cloth and then making a quilt out of it i'm in the process of of taking those stories and then creating a historical fiction book about the historical period between the 30s and nineties when Soviet union fell apart because there are lots of drama there. There's lots of material for a good novel. And I think that story needs to be told. I mean, we're a small country, but we've been through a lot and you know, that's my job as a writer to eliminate something that, so that it's not forgotten in time. The second one that I think I will definitely have to write about is the experience of moving back after 20 years in the U S and really telling the story of somebody who is not a local anymore because i've lived most of my life in the us but is treated as a local because i have roots here and that emotional turmoil that comes with that that would be a short way of you know reverse culture shock i would call it
0: yeah Um, just to go back to Azerbaijan and the history I think like I myself am now discovering so much about that period that our parents went through our grandparents went through so I think like this topic right now is so popular for so many people our age or younger older like you know millennial generation I think especially because um you're still millennial millennial right
1: i think so yeah it's
0: just so confusing i i actually met up with a girl and she's like i was born in 2000 but i think i'm a millennial i'm like no honey you're gen z (laughs) you're too young to be a millennial she's like no 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 i don't consider myself a gen z so it's just so confusing but i think it's more in terms of experiences and i feel like this post-soviet generation um like shares the same feeling of not knowing who we are because um, our parents weren't allowed to learn history. And then here we are trying to learn something from ground zero that was never before. Because Azerbaijan was a republic for like two years. Kazakhstan never was. Kazakhstan was always under Russian Empire because that's where I'm from and my mom is Kazakh, so I'm mixed. So it's just like both of my countries share this experience of um, suppressed history suppressed culture and so I am looking forward to reading this book or collection of stories whatever it will be I I just I really think uh, as an Azerbaijani I celebrate each and every time when Azerbaijanis today get to tell our stories ourselves because I'm so also sick and tired I always say this of white people telling our stories for us when um, we can do it ourselves we don't need anyone to come in and explain our history to us so i'm really excited about this yeah thank you
1: thank you i think that you know
0: i grew up hearing these stories but i think
1: it really comes you know the interest to delve into these into these stories comes at a certain age for the longest time i could care less about these stories they were just funny stories or True. exciting stories that my grandma would tell me And I would listen to them and then I would move on. And I really didn't have any desire to put the pieces together until a certain age. And then you start asking yourself that question. You start caring about identity. Um, I think it happens a little earlier with the information and everything, like the newer, the younger generations, they care, they start caring earlier. They start asking those questions earlier. But for us, it's like, you know, you study, then you're like trying to get back Get on your feet, stand uh strong on, on your two feet. And then you start going back and like, huh? My like my grandma used to tell me these stories about war, how they were um in a village in Baku, and her dad was declared the enemy of state, and they didn't have anything to eat. And for the longest time, I don't think I understood that she's talking about hunger. Like it all sounded like a cool adventure to me until I you know, moved back here and heard those stories again. And I'm like, oh gosh, like this needs to be told. It's crazy how many lives were completely butchered because of some political agenda and how a whole nation was repressed with such incredible consequences for years to come because of a certain, you know, because it was not, um, it, was, it was an advantageous to, the you know history of the the political agenda of soviet union so you Mm -hmm. become kind of you go back and become interested in those stories and they're really incredible any house you go to in in baku you can find that one grandma that's going to tell you a crazy story of her father or grandfather who was repressed and the wife followed him it's like blockbuster stuff but we're so used to it because everybody went through this, that we don't we didn't really pay attention to these stories in the past because they were so repetitive. Everybody had the story of, you know, my grandfather was repressed, the wife followed yeah. him, and then we don't know what happened, you know? And then one person survived and here we are. So it's crazy. It's crazy what our country went through. And I do agree, I think partially the reason why we now have a chance to tell these stories is because of immigration. Because now we have second generation immigrants that are have a very good command of the language. They can write these stories. And you can disseminate these stories much easier than in the past. There's internet, there's social media, and et cetera. And I think we must take advantage of it. And Azerbaijanis, there's so few people that write, there's so few people that write in English. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that in me as well of okay, I I need to tell the story because there's you know, not a lot of people that can tell that story in English.
0: But it wasn't a calculated decision for you, right, to write in English. It was just simply that at the time you were still living in the U.S. And uh, you just went with what felt easiest, right? I mean, you lived for 20 years in the U.S. I bet you felt much more comfortable already, like, writing in and- Expressing yourself in English, which is considered to be your fourth language, right? If I am not mistaken But it became eventually first, I bet
1: I remember when I just moved to the US and people would ask me how many languages I know and I would say five Which is I speak Russian. um, I speak Azeri. I went to Azeri school. Then I speak um, English, you know, and then I speak Turkish and French, very basic French But they would be they would look at you as, as if you're a prodigy and I used to be so surprised, and then I, I would, I realized that if you look through that period that we had to go through, which is the '90s, so none of us woke up and said, "Okay, we're going to be these amazing prodigy children that speak five languages." Yeah. We spoke Azeri because a lot of us went to Azeri school because in the '90s that national um mood was back. Right, Soviet Union just crumbled. I was there was one specific generation in 92 kids that went to school in 92 and 93 that became kind of a victim of that, not a victim, but they got impacted by the uh, upheaval of the national sentiment. And so what happened is a bunch of dads and moms said, I'm not going to let my kid go to Russian school because in the 90s, in 1990, the Russian army came in, they um, massacred hundreds of people. And so um, you know, emotions were kind of on the rise. So I got sent I actually went to school one year later because I didn't speak the language. And my dad said, "No way, you're going to stay learn Azeri and go to Azeri school." And I'm the only one in the family that goes to Azeri school. Meanwhile, my mom doesn't speak the language. My dad kind of doesn't speak the language because they won't, but they both went to Moscow State University. My grandma is the only person that speaks Azeri. So to communicate with my mom and dad, I have to speak Russian. To communicate at school and with my grandma, I switched to Azeri. Um, And then Turkish, because we're a new country and we just got disconnected from Soviet Union, the only other influence that we had at the time in terms of TV was Turkish TV. We would watch Turkish cartoons, not understand the word, but mm-hmm. you're a kid, you know, and if you want to watch something, you'll figure it out. So we get exposed to Turkish influence that way. So by the time I arrived to the U.S., I the only language that I chose to study was French. I was in 11th grade. Uh, we, you know, we used to watch the very popular sitcom, Hélène and Her Friends and i was like all right i'm i want to be like them so my dad gets me a tutor that's the only language that i learned uh you know i made a conscious choice so i came to the us and i speak five languages and i'm trying to explain to people that you know yeah it's great but it's like how history shaped us it wasn't a conscious choice to go back to your question as far as english it actually was a very calculated um, move i experimented writing in russian Um, and I, at some point told myself that if I write in English, I'll reach a wider audience. And after that, it was a very, um, calculated decision to read about 50 books in English and to practice writing in in English and come up with what I, you know, what you would call a writing style. So I write in Russian now. I, I can write in Russian, but I don't have a style in Russian. My style my voice is developed Mm -hmm. in English and it was very conscious because I knew that I can reach more people that way.
0: Interesting. Actually, am I allowed to read some quotes from your book? Because absolutely. I, okay, I, I actually highlighted a few uh, quotes that either spoke to me in like my experience or I was like, oh, this is going to be good like in the interview, but I have a lot of them, so maybe not all of them, but this one since we're talking about languages. So I won't read the full paragraph, but just the last I think three sentences. So it's how the main character Mariam, explains to um, I think was it Russian uh, No, the, the teacher who was obsessed with Soviet Union. You needed four languages to get through the day. Nobody just decided to become a polyglot and pick up four languages by age 12. The number of languages was, in a way, proof of the twists and turns of history of our region as our country was handed over from one empire to another, ending up as an independent state almost by accident. And I just feel like this explains everything you need to know about why Azerbaijanis can speak Azeri, Russian, Turkish, and English. Like, I think this is foremost common, but you also know French and this is like not because they're geniuses <laughs> but because it's just simply our history like the this is what we had to do basically to continue living under empires or developing as independent state like you said with turkish series or cartoons
1: yeah i i i actually remember um the character in the book is based on a professor that i had when i moved to the us and um, it just so happened that he spent a lot of his college, not college, but grad school years studying Soviet Union in the context of Cold War, because Cold War in the U.S. took a long time. And there is actually a, a big group of academicians that are really that have are really invested in that topic because it was very relevant at the time. Nobody knew how it's going to turn out. And there's a lot of interest around the psychology of a Soviet man. There's a lot of interest around um, how Soviet Union connected these very different cultures under one roof. And this professor, he was teaching American government at the community college where I went. And I would spend some time with him after class. Uh, and I very quickly, I realized that he's incredibly fascinated. It's like as if you've studied something for years and then you found An artifact and the artifact is talking to you. So he had this fascination uh, with Soviet Union. He had a very theoretic view of it. And I was an 18 year old who grew up in the period when Soviet Union crumbled. I knew that story from a very matter of fact, day by day type of thing as a child that grew up and saw it and just registered some of these things. So our conversations were very different because he would come up with some kind of a theoretical argument. And I would be like, no, that's not what happened. Like we don't grow up wanting to learn all these languages. It's just that we grew up in a period of chaos and country was being influenced by different cultures. And as a child growing up, you get exposed to all these different cultures, popular yes. culture, language, TV, etc., music, And we that was a very interesting exchange. And I wanted to kind of capture that in the book that she realizes that day-to-day stuff that she never even thought about uh, is so fascinating to somebody who spent years studying it. Um, And I think it also shows that when you study something, when you research something, you know, there's a concept of an armchair economist, for example, somebody who's always sitting at home and uh, trying to understand the market. Um, it's a very true saying that you know you can spend a lot of time studying something, but you end up learning much more when you're in the middle of it. And yeah. that was the contrast between this learned man and this eighteen year old girl that just saw some of these things firsthand.
0: But actually, was it the only time when you had experience like that? Because I feel like a lot of people have a lot of misunderstanding with the Soviet Union. A lot of times they just call everything Russia while it's like 15 republics. And also, did you ever feel like um, mansplained? topics that you personally went through like with the soviet life you know or post-soviet life and then no no you're wrong this is not how it was but you're like but i lived there you never been there so like if you had any experiences like that less maybe positive but still realistic
1: um
0: okay i did
1: have some experiences that were not exactly negative but they were a bit ridiculous i i had these i had this exchange once at a at a at a grad school where um, I was talking to my professor and he, I think he, he was on the other side. Like he thought of Russia as a place where mafia bosses are handling everything. And so I had some funny stories where he saw this danger and threat that mafia guys are going to come after me and stuff. And it was nowhere close to that. And then there's also the thing where people will, think of you as somebody who has insider knowledge. Maybe you've had that. They'll be like, what's going on? What's Putin thinking? And I'm like, like I don't know. Yeah, i just yeah. like, I just read a couple of other things in Russian, but I don't know what he's thinking. I'm nowhere closer to this than you are. I had those funny stories. And America is definitely a place of a lot of stereotypes. So yes, they kind of look at it as a one big, you know, just blob on the map, with yeah. everything is Russia, everywhere is cold. Um, I had some negative experience, which I think is captured in the book, where the um, Assyrians that were from Iraq, they didn't know what type of country it is. And I got some ridiculous questions like, how do they deliver mail? Do they deliver it with camels? And I was like, I don't even know if he's joking or if he's serious. <laughs> because um, I had people that thought of Azerbaijan as province in india so i had that right yeah really funny experience i just started working at exxon and i told this lady who was an admin she was in the same room with me i said i'm from azerbaijan and then she said my grandma was from leipzig and i swear for like three seconds i was like trying to and i'm (laughs) like okay (laughs) there's like no comment leipzig seriously and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you, you know, close by, you're close enough. So I had those ridiculous stories. U.S. in that sense is an amazing place. You never know what people are going to think. But I've always lived, I guess, you know, I have fewer of those stories as others because I've lived in these big cities that were very international. But I think the latest story would be my favorite.
0: Actually, it just reminded me a bit like off the topic, but I think it's still related to this. Um, when I just moved to Prague, so I went to Anglo American University, which is like in English and, uh, American professors, um, work there. And so we had a lot of exchange students from the U S as well. And that was my first time meeting actually like Americans. So basically growing up in Kazakhstan, I was always proud that I'm Caucasian from the Caucasus, right? And in Kazakhstan there, you know, if you meet anyone from the Caucasus, it feels like family, so it's not even like only Azerbaijanis, it's like Georgians, Chechen, uh, Ingush, we have, you know, all different mixes, because Stalin was sending a lot of different ethnic groups there, so it's just normal, you know, you grew up with Koreans, Uyghur, uh, Tatar, it's just normal there, so I just always felt like Caucasians, we are the the people, and so when I came to university, um, my first class was Intro to Mass Communications, I think. And it was actually taught by Monk so she's a monk like she has the shaved head from i'm not sure but maybe taiwan Ah, taiwan yeah yeah actually and so it was just like cultural shock you know i'm in europe first time i never traveled abroad before like um this is my first time i'm studying here this here's the monk teaching intro to mass communication and i'm sitting next to american girl and uh then the first class and i get introduced to the whole race thing because in kazakhstan we just like we have ethnicities and that's it like what is your ethnicity but then race never was a thing. And so she asked us to ask each other questions about our race, where we're from, et cetera. And so this American girl tells me, I'm Caucasian. And I'm like, no way, you are Caucasian? Uh, you know? And she's like, yeah, like my, you know how Americans are? They're like, my great-grandfather is like from uh, Ireland. I was like ireland is caucasus but <laughs> i was literally like sitting there i was like wow ireland is also caucasus like how did that happen and then you know it just took me some time to realize that americans just have misunderstanding because it's actually caucasian is a term for people from the caucasus it's just not used right by americans there's uh, a story there's some story about it
1: i think it's like the the, in the white man the first white man <laughs> originates from caucasus which is really hard to believe in but okay yeah. like somehow and we were so amazed imagine you're coming to the u.s 2003 you don't know any of this and we have to go through the census and i'm like my yeah. god they have a whole line for us so we picked caucasian and then um for a couple of years we're like great they are so inclusive right They included the <laughs> yeah. there's like four boxes and one of them is caucasian and then and then i heard somebody say that again like just like that, and I was like, "Really, you're Caucasian? or You guys are really confused." <laughs> yeah. And then it turned yeah. out I was confused, but somebody went wrong with that title. Although, I need to read up on it. It is very confusing, and Caucasus yeah. is not, it's not like a huge place. It's like one little mountain range. Somehow, that's where the white man originated from.
0: I love those TikToks now, where like Gen Z love to talk about. It. They're like they're actually becoming aware of the fact that white people. Steal not only land but other people's names as well i think it's due to the fact that caucasians were under soviet union and like weren't able to speak english go out there and say hey listen you're misusing our term we're caucasians and i feel like we're the first generation to be like wait, you're not Caucasian, you're European, Caucasian is a person from the Caucasus, so I just think like, uh, I stand by this, that white people need to stop calling themselves Caucasian, if your roots are not from the mountains of the Caucasus, you're not Caucasian, stop using it, it's our term, because I think Caucasian nations, they're just very unique in their like rules, they're very similar to each other, and yet so different, and so I do think that we deserve our own category we're not quite middle eastern we're not quite european we're like in between so in
1: between so in between and even if you step away from kind of categorizing yourself it's um you know you get it firsthand when you see others when you see people from turkey or from iran or from uh kazakhstan you get it you're like i have so much in common but yet there's so much that's totally not in common yeah um and then you feel it because and then when you you realize that if you're looking at somebody who's kind of similar and it's all the same in your head, um, you're totally missing something because you're an outsider. You don't know the commonalities and things that are different. You know you just got to be really careful there
0: and actually that moves me to my next uh question i guess about the book but it's just really interesting how mariam the character yet again if you didn't read the book the main character is mariam how she um when she arrives to her first job uh which is this uh optical store right uh, she works for Assyrian people. She's fascinated that they still exist because uh, she learned about them from history books and here they are asking her um, like what type of what, what religion is she, right? And what type of Muslim she is. And she's like, I, I need to ask my mom about it. I'm not even sure myself. But then what really uh, spoke to me as another immigrant is how she saw like Russian stores and Georgian stores, and how Georgian men was like, Are you Georgian? And she's like, Azerbaijani like uh, I'm maybe paraphrasing, but that's how I remember it and he's like, neighbors, you know and and that's like the feeling of community that post Soviets still have like what was your experience with that and um why did you decide to include this in Mariam's story like what does it tell the reader that we need to know about her and just experience that you had as an immigrant?
1: Well, I think when you're far away from a place that where you grew up and um you are you know before you before Marianne moves to um, US before anybody moves away from their hometown you don't ever consciously ask yourself about your um, identity in the community in, in the kind of a community of the world you think of yourself as a Zeri you don't compare yourself to Georgians you're never around Georgians unless You know, you go there for tourism purposes, Um, you are exposed to other cultures, either through immigrants that have already assimilated or you're traveling and it's, you know, five days and you kind of get it, forget about it. But when you're in a common, if you're like in a country like U.S. where everybody came from somewhere and the sense of community is suddenly gone, you are looking for anything that's familiar and all of a sudden you know if before you never really identified with russia for example you suddenly realize well i've spent the whole time listening to this russian music so i'm kind of like i guess i have something in common with russian that's why when mariam ends up in a russian music store she's listening to all this music and she feels something which is very uh, unique feeling when you're away from home for the first time and you end up in a place where something is calling you something is familiar that first feeling it's such a pool it's such a kind of hard to describe pool which i i tried to show but it's really beyond words what you experience in your heart that moment it's a pain and bitter sweet feeling of I know this, I've heard this, um, but at the same time, I'm not there anymore. And I'm aware of that. And once you leave, you always carry a bit of that sadness with you. And I think when Mariam goes to these stores, she goes to the music store. She realizes that the owner, the person who set up the store um, has music that ends at a certain point, like it's all the stuff that she knew but then in like let's say year in 1996 it stops and you can she can tell that it's almost like that's when that person moved and time stopped there because when you move you do solidify that period of when you moved and those emotions and feelings and everything and she recognizes that sadness the the store owner she she's been there for a while obviously She sees Maryam and she can tell like, oh, this is a newbie. She's going through the rough period now, even though she's she's an 18-year-old. And the same happens with the Georgian. She comes in and he has a very short exchange with her. But then he says, you know, it gets better. You know, it's just a quick phrase. But they have that exchange. And through that, you realize that even with them, you know, people from a country that you've never lived in, You have that in common. You have this homesickness in common and you have bits and pieces of that culture together. Um, And I think that's definitely the case for the entire CIS community. uh, Azeris, Georgians, Kazakhs, you know, we all miss something, a vibe that was there that's really hard to put into words, but it brings us together in a foreign
0: country. And also in the book, Mariam basically is a lot with other immigrants, but like for you, when was the moment when you started hanging out more with Americans, if ever? Because I know that in the U.S., somehow, like yes, it's diverse, but a lot of different groups they stick together. So Asians with Asians, um, you know, black people with black people, for many reasons. Uh, but what, what was your experience? My
1: experience was, um, I remember that when I moved from chicago to washington which was in 2006 i was in an international program there and it was uh, a group of american students and it was a group of european students i remember being really surprised that i clicked with the europeans right away and we had so much more in common than me trying to click with americans at that point i was there three years I had more in common with the Europeans and I clicked faster with them than with the Americans. So it was a long uh, process for me. Um, Nevertheless, I was more immersed uh, into kind of a, this program and i got, I think I got closer to some of the Americans yet. I, I felt that I felt that big kind of a border between us. And I would say what really helped me the moment when I moved away from that is Probably when I started working at ExxonMobil, which I started working there in 2013, at that point, I was in the country for a long time, right? 10 years. And you get to work on things together. And that boundary is suddenly like it's going away and you realize people are people everywhere.
0: So that's when I
1: started having American friends, but for the longest time in the US, it's Such a country of immigrants that you have these communities that stay within that culture and stay within that comfort zone for decades, never come out and are happy with that. So, that sense of freedom to do whatever you want, to talk to whoever you want, and not feel like you need to assimilate, it's very unique to the US. Anywhere else you go, you're going to have a majority and you're, you know, you're a newcomer. Here it's a you know it's a melting pot. Everybody came from somewhere. Everybody's hanging out with their own group, and nobody feels like they need to assimilate. You know, you assimilate in some ways in terms of language and work and things like that. But in terms of your personal life, also, US has a very strong, um, very strong understanding of personal space. It's very respected, um, and so you get to do you in the US, and nobody
0: questions Mm -hmm. that also you moved after 2001 9 11 and you being muslim like as an azerbaijani we are not practicing we're non-observant muslims but we're still like it's our cultural it's i always explain to people it's more like of a cultural thing than religious it's like there are jewish people who are not religiously Jewish but they're Jewish and I feel like for post-Soviet people that's the same because again Soviet Union wouldn't allow our parents grandparents to believe in God or go to church, mosque uh, anything and so here we are calling ourselves Muslim but then you know uh, people don't fast for example or drink alcohol like it depends but um, did you ever experience Islamophobia uh, after 9-11 due to your move after 9-11 I mean
1: you know i um I was I thought it was really interesting how the only exchange that I had that really startled me was with um with the Assyrians when they asked me if I was Muslim. and at that point, and the Assyrians are Christians. Mm-hmm. And at that point, i I answered the question, and it was the first time when I felt like the answer really will determine something that it means something to them, whether I say Muslim or not. So before I answered, I was like, this is an irrelevant detail. Nobody cares. So I said Muslim. And I kind of saw that he got curious and asked me the second question of, are you Shia or Sunni? And I gener—I genuinely had no idea. So I told him in a very naive way. I said, oh, well, I'm going to ask my mom. I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he just laughed and said, you don't know? I said, yeah, I don't know. I, and I and in fact, I asked my mom later, it turned out that she was Shia and my dad was Sunni. And mm. this is the first time I ever heard. I had no idea. Um, and then the thing that he answered that this is what he said afterwards, it really I was really confused. He said, It's okay. We're all human beings. And I was like, Okay, I guess I'm forgiven for being a Muslim. So so that was one case where I felt like, does it even matter? But after that. I have never had a case in 20 years in the U.S. where I felt like um, that the fact that I'm culturally Muslim, which you're absolutely right on, played a role. Um, I lived in very international cities. I was in D.C. then I was in Houston, which is, I think, number three in terms of being multicultural because Mm -hmm. of the oil industry. So I've been lucky uh, in that sense. But my husband had a, a... a very negative experience when he just moved to the US. He was renting a room um, very close to campus, and very soon he realized that he's renting a room uh, with missionaries that have dedicated their life to convert Muslims to Christianity. And um, they were not exactly very friendly about it. And so he had a very negative experience. And as it often happens, you know he went through that negative experience at the very beginning of his move to the us some point he started fasting at some point he took religion more seriously because of this pushback Mm -hmm. i um never had that but i do recall that i once had a very symbolic experience i was fasting during ramadan it was sometime end of year that's when where it Ramadan was happening that year and I was living in a uh, in a flat with two roommates with an Israeli girl and with a German girl and it just so happened that there were three fasts from like the Ramadan fast in Islam uh, Efrat was fasting um, there was some day where I don't think theirs is a full fast but there are certain things that you don't eat until a certain time and a Christian fast was all happening on the same day. And we all had a tough day we all went to work and then to to study and we broke the fast together three of us and to me it was like it's just who cares right all different religions but nothing prevents us to go to a mexican restaurant and break our fast so i always go back to that story and i realized that you know that's I remember what Hannah said, she she was the German, she said, we're all here for some time and we all should try to be nice to each other. Well, it did get worse and worse in the U.S. I think once, I think, uh, you know, sometimes you get shielded from day-to-day impact of that, but I remember when Trump got elected, I was shattered. I, I think a lot of people could, wouldn't believe that he got elected. And then that was not even the worst. And what he started doing with his Muslim ban and all that crazy stuff that he would say on TV, it was devastating. It felt like living in a country that's just going down and down. So I think that at that point, even though I never had an experience where somebody directly accused me of anything, um, I felt like you know, this is not good. It's going to get the country. It's going to radicalize the country very quickly. And it did. Um, And it's still there. And I realized how much of that was really dormant and how much of it I didn't see because it doesn't happen in big cities. But I mean, you have like four or five big cities across the U S everything else is rural America. And those places, people, They, um, you know, it's not, America is not representative uh, by these big metropolises. You got to look at the whole country. It's a huge country, 300 million people. And if you look at the majority, they were fully on board with everything that Trump was saying regarding immigrants from Mexico and the Muslim ban and all of that. So it was really stressful to be like, oh my God, this is where I live. This is where my kids are growing up. Um, I mean, this is a nightmare. So that's when I really felt it, but more as a society. Luckily, I haven't had those type of um, exchanges, but my husband, you know, you ask him, he'll tell you, you know, we talk about Soviet Union and there was so much oppression that came with that period. But I think that um, overall secular environment that was present in all these countries that were more religious before soviet union i think it it allowed for some progress it allowed for some um you know some movement towards european culture um and so that ended up that's why we are unique it is still conservative it's still very patriarchal but the religion thing is not there it's very light and it was shocking to Azeris, uh, to Americans, um, that there is this interesting blend of everything Middle Eastern except, you know, the part that they're kind of afraid of. Um, yeah. So, you know, my book is—it's it, um, the, the category that it's a bestseller in, in Middle East. Category, yeah. One and the biggest one, where I'm most proud of, because it's harder to become a bestseller in that category, is Middle Eastern literature. On Amazon. The second one is immigrants and emigrants, which is um, also an up and coming genre. It's um, I think it's coming up because there's a second generation immigrants that are wanting to talk about this and tell these stories. So there are Korean writers, there are Vietnamese, there are Iranians, there are Russians all of that second generation feels the need to tell that story so the genre is now coming up because they're growing up and they know english much better than their parents who came and worked immigrant jobs and um that's a second and the third one is city life fiction because so much of the book has this two characters of chicago and baku and so it got um there's a there's a John, there's a category like that on Amazon, which says, you know, you read a book, it's very focused on a certain city. I've had some emails from readers where they'll, they try to go and find if uh, those bakery, the, the Georgian bakeries there. I met with an American student yesterday who mm-hmm. uh, was a very interesting story. So she was born in the U.S. in Texas. Then when she's 11, she moves to Baku and she's been your parents were teachers at an international school. She's here for like eight years. So she's kind of a reverse like immigrant and now he's moving back to the us which is doing exactly the opposite of what i did and um we were we were talking to her and she's going to chicago she's going to a college in chicago and she's like i googled the bakery and i found out that it was closed and i'm like yeah it is cool its closed it has been closed after covid so i think um Uh, it's it's really interesting how the city becomes a character in the book and you end up getting attached and it's the natural thing. That's what I do when I read, you know, there's so many interesting stories like that. If you read Shantaram, if you're interested, I highly suggest it's one of those huge books that are incredibly long, but it keeps you going because of that one book, there is a direct flight to Bombay from Istanbul, because there are hordes of people that are traveling there to look at those absolutely insignificant little areas that are described in the book, a circle, a Kalaba circle, and a cafe where the main character goes. and bar and there's a shantaram tour you come to bombay you sign up for a shantaram tour it's like a tourist thing now so i think it's amazing and it's a testament to how powerful some books can be that you immerse yourself in the story so much you don't want to leave it you want to uh, you know take in as much as you can there's a you know i'll give you a book recommendation I, in my opinion the most beautiful book on love is written by a turkish author it's called the museum of innocence
0: is it a Pamuk?
1: It's Orhan Pamuk.
0: Okay, uh, it's been on my on my list for a while, so maybe it's a it's a sign. I tried to
1: read Orhan Pamuk. He is an incredibly difficult writer to read. In fact, there's a there's a club of people that didn't finish these novels. That's why they're there because they it's hard to get through it. It's you know his novels are very heavy. Except this one. This one is about love. Every single page, of this, <laughs> five hundred page book is about love. And what he did is after he finished writing it, while he was writing it, he developed a museum with things from this book. And you read a book, you go to that museum, I've never felt anything like it. You're immersed into this thing and you're walking there with the book and you're seeing cigarette butts and dresses and shoes and and it's crazy. It's really crazy how he was able to really make it into a physical experience. But this has happened for years, right? There's a you know, in London there's a place where Sherlock Holmes was, you know, supposedly there. And there's a like yeah. I said, the wonder tour and the list goes on. So Books have that uh, magical impact on people where when you really get immersed,
0: you want to get the
1: most of it. You want to get as much as
0: you can. Your book did that to me, that even though I never lived in Baku, I've never lived in the U.S., Chicago, anywhere. uh, Like I moved from Almaty at the age of 19 to Prague and I've been in Europe for nine years, like, you know, as an immigrant, like, I still consider myself an immigrant, and I'm proud of it, I'm definitely not one of those who wants to become European, I'm a no, I still have my roots, etc., but your book felt like reading my own experience, but yet different, but same, you know, and I think, really, I even posted it on my story, I think you saw it, so can I read this part, because it's like, so it speaks to me when they get the news the family of Mariam get the news that uh, her uncle died passed away uh, and so yeah I'm I'm just going to read it mourning miles away from those who passed left you one-on-one with the grief it attacked you unexpectedly it lived alongside you rearing its ugly head to sting you without warning and then lingered for days mourning away from your loved ones meant sorrow that never expired you just learned how to live with it it seemed as if by immigrating we silently accepted the loss of all of our relatives we didn't lose them to death but to the distance that severed the connection death only furthered the damage you'd miss a person and then suddenly realize they were no longer there to miss. This is so like powerful to me. Like I think this is my favorite quote from the book just because I went through that mourning process of losing my uncle as well. Um, But I guess I can say I'm happy that Marianne was there with her mom and brother because I was alone and I just remember I was writing my thesis. I was graduating and getting that news alone like the pain is unbearable like being away from the family and not being able to go and be with all of the people who are grieving you know to be able to cry and like feel comfort in grieving with others and i've never heard anyone before talk about this specifically it's like being an immigrant it's so many different things but like The fact that you, when you decide to move away, you need to understand you literally can say goodbye to everyone because probably you won't be there when they'll die. I know this sounds so dark, but this is the reality. You know what it made me think
1: about? And this happened after I wrote the book and I was rereading it and enough time passed that I felt kind of moved by this passage myself. I don't think we ever questioned the purpose of, you know, hundreds of things that we do when somebody dies. We just go on autopilot. And, you know, you probably had that when somebody died. It doesn't have to be a close relative. But what you remember is the news come and the family gets together. It starts immediately. It's a 24-7 thing. You cover all the mirrors in the house. You constantly are cooking and serving tea and discussing. And for 40 days, the death of this person completely consumes normal life. Everything becomes on hold. And we think of it as traditions. Nobody ever questions why this is done. Why was it? What's the spiritual purpose of it? I don't think anybody does it with that purpose in mind but what happens is for 40 days in a group of close people you truly mourn every minute of that day what you think about is that person and that is what's missing and the funny thing is what's missing is because you don't do it in 40 days you spread that into years because you you get up and you go about your business and then it hits you and it's so hard and then you get yourself back to normal because nobody around you is going to pause life for you to go through this morning so you keep going hits you again so you take that amount of grief and you split it into tiny pieces and it's just so much more difficult to do that because it feels fresh every single time and i realized the wisdom of these rituals after i've gone through it and it's just so wise and i never thought of the, the purpose of this ritual um but yeah it's you 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 think about the person that's the worst when you remember that person you remember something from his life or her life and then you're like oh shit like they going- hit and then you have to literally take a breath to get your balance back on. So I wanted to show that. I, that was one of the things on my list of how do I show that in a yeah. book. And I'm you are the second person who highlighted that paragraph. I never thought anybody would because um you kind of have to go through it to pick up on that. I don't think right. you can understand that just by reading. And I'm so glad that I didn't cut it out um, because it's one of the things that you sign up for when you're when you move to another country. You sort of lose everybody. And like I wrote there, death just kind of makes it final. But mm-hmm. you know, you end up being away from on the good moments and the bad moments and everything in between.
0: During the first interview for the website if you're watching this probably it will be up you can go read more about amazing mary um but you mentioned getting approvals from people who you mentioned in the book can you like share this experience because i actually never knew about this and now i'm like considering if i would ever write a book having to go to those people and ask them for their permission like how was it
1: the rule is if anybody in the book is recognizable and if they're pictured in any way that can damage their reputation, which is a very vague definition, right. right? People are feel very personal about what can damage their reputation. You could say something not nice, and they'll say, "My wife's going to read it, and then <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble." Whatever. Um, the definition is vague on purpose because fiction is, a, you know, it's a vague topic. Uh, the rule is you have to reach out to them, and you have to get their verbal or written consent that they don't mind uh this content from being published. Otherwise you can get sued. And me being a debut writer, I, you know, I think while I was writing it and probably for a couple of years after, I had no idea this thing's gonna get published. I was like, oh, I don't need to worry about this because this is never gonna be an issue. Then I get the contract and I'm like, oh, I have a lot of personal information in this book. What do I do? So I went through the whole process of you know, changing names and and that was actually painful because get attached to the names and then you have to change you want people to get recognized but what i found out in the process is people take this very seriously you know if you have used them as a side character they will read everything you wrote under a microscope and most of the time they'll be pissed they'll be they'll think that you didn't do a good job um because you're, you know, you're as a writer, you're using them as a prompt. This could be like a side character and you need them to say whatever at a certain time that right. they're saying it, And they're like, this is my chance to be stay in history, and she messed it up. Anyway, so lots of funny stories there. But what I've learned is people take this really seriously. And a few people that I reached out to, I thought that, you know, I'll send them an email and say, hey, I wrote a book. It's fictionalized, but there's a character that is based on you. I thought I was going to get a response in 20 minutes and they'll say, you know, good luck. I hope you, you know, I hope you I hope your book becomes a bestseller and that'll be it. Instead, I got emails that were like, oh, I'm going to have my lawyers look at it and I'll get back to you. And this dragged on for weeks. Um, and people really took this seriously. So I made a mental note to be aware of that in advance and, um, either, you know, talk to them in advance or maybe, uh, fictionalize them further. Um, but yeah, you are supposed to send out consent forms. This is completely handled by your publisher. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to get a response back in, in written, then you have to like PDF it and send it so that it's on file um it's very touchy-feely and um i was lucky to get all my consent forms but there were some people that people uh, that were included in the novel as characters i uh based some of the characters based on that i i don't talk to and i couldn't get in touch with them mm-hmm. and so i'm really hoping i'm i'm not gonna get an unpleasant surprise right in the future but you know this is what writers do they sometimes piss people off with what they write i guess i signed up for it so it's fine
0: but okay this i don't want to spoil anything but there's one character the Assyrian character that turns out to be the villain um did you have to reach out to those people did, like is it based on a true story like i mean you don't have to go there but i was just i i wonder how that person uh reacted to
1: Completely fictionalized.
0: Okay, so none of this, and the person doesn't exist.
1: Let me just say it this way. Up until chapter 37 and 8.
0: It happened, yeah.
1: Lots of things were uh, based on my story. Uh And then uh, everything after that is fictionalized. And so those characters were um, fictionalized in a sense that a lot of those things did not take place. Okay. And I didn't have to get a consent for that.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Like this law part of writing, I never even thought about it, but that's so fun.
1: <laughs> it's there's a lot of technical stuff about writing um, and publishing that I learned. That's precisely why I took a year off to understand the business right. side of it. And I'm glad I had the right attitude about it. I didn't, um, you know, I, I trusted completely to the publishing house and the experts there in terms of titling and in terms of cover design and uh, promotion campaign, you know ads and things like that. It all paid off. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting thing that has nothing to do with inspiration. You know, it's a creative process, but there's a very, there's an existing industry with its own rules. Um, when it comes to how people buy books, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot, a lot of it has to do with seasonality, when's the best time to release a book and et cetera. And I, I'm glad I wasn't working because I really learned all of that. And the second book will be much easier for me to, um, combine with like a, daytime
0: job my last question although i do want to ask you so much more but you know it's gonna be too long and i hope one day i'll meet you in person in baku maybe in your studio and like we'll get to chat about it yes i i want to go back i haven't been in azerbaijan for 10 years by the way so okay my last question is have you read the book big magic by elizabeth gilbert i haven't
1: read that book
0: okay but you you have to because like i think it's really great for creatives but i was just gonna quote her that um it really helped me with whatever i do creatively that once you create something you need to let it go it no longer belongs to you like whatever criticism or feedback it gets it's its own child (laughs) and you must let it go so what about your book like what is the feedback you went on a book tour have you been receiving any criticism if yes how are you dealing with it as a young author just who started and uh, you know you are still learning like you said so just share that part cuz i'm sure like writing a novel it's it's its own journey but then once it's out there you can no longer control anything so how is it for you
1: hard <laughs> i um when i decided to go on a book tour which was completely my idea um i think i ended up facing three of my biggest fears um i went to the us at that point we were living here my husband couldn't come with me so it was just me um all of the events were organized by me so there was a lot of logistical stuff that i had to do i was organizing this book tour based on when people can host me and Mm -hmm. so a lot of these events were happening back to back And it was driven by when the venues were available. I did not have to pay for any of these venues. And that's why I kind of had to be there when when they will host me. Um, I'm afraid of flying. I'm really afraid of flying. But I had to kind of fly on my own to the U.S. Second thing was um, public speaking. I'm okay with one-on-one interviews. But standing in front of a group of people and... Talking about a book, even if I wrote it, and I know the answer to any question was nerve-wracking for me. Um, and the third thing was really de- doing this self-promotion thing felt very uncomfortable. I have done public speaking before; I can you get used to that. But I've never had something where I was promoting my own work. Um, and I think from our, you know, our cultural background, there's this taboo. Of, you know, you yeah. don't print yourself. You don't you know promote yourself you um just don't do that um and then the reviews started coming in and there is no magic around it the first negative review is gonna you're gonna get you you will um first of all you will agree with everything it says right this the inner critic will wake up and you'll say yeah exactly that's why I, i told you to write this book and I went, I, I go through those emotional roller coasters. I don't have a, I, I don't want to say, you know, oh, I'm used to it. No, it hurts every time. What I've noticed though, is I had certain idea of how this book is going to touch people's lives. And I'm really happy to know that it did, but it did in ways that I did not expect. Um, I, what I found out is the parts that I thought of as very basic in a sense that this is the stuff that happens to everybody the comparing of food and and having those uh, uh experiences that are very common uh they ended up people ended up um feeling very strongly about that as opposed to the parts that I considered exciting and original and things like that so I realized that right. people get drawn to exciting things things that are outside of the normal and, to things that are very normal, very common. What I also found out is that some Americans will truly understand the experience or get a glimpse of it, and some will say, I don't know what she was talking about. So those reviews were a little hard to take, but I um, but I would say that I've, overall I've been very lucky in a sense that my book tour, as crazy of an idea as it was, debut authors don't go on book tours Mm -hmm. they just don't and they don't do it when the book comes out it usually happens like six months later right um i did and i gathered you know a bunch of people i had six events i had nine events in six cities in a 20-day period i sold hundreds of books online and offline uh you know in these events It was an exhilarating uh, experience. And it was all thanks to a very community, both business and cultural that reached out and supported me and provided these venues and people that showed up. I had people that drove for two hours to come to my Brooklyn event. I was shocked that so many people came to support me. Um, So I think because that experience was so overwhelmingly positive, um it was enough for me to say okay you know you'll get you'll get some rotten reviews that's normal um and then i always go back to was this an honest story it might be boring it might be slow to some people and some people finished it in one sitting but was it honest that's my ultimate test and it was it's a very sincere story that's why it's it maybe lacks some of that um you know um fast pace and the page turner and the conspiracy and That's why I I chose that story to be that way because I knew that that's the story that's inside of me, whether people like it or not, like you said, you let it go. It's hardest thing to let it go, but I think I'm getting there. I think I'm getting to leaving it alone. You know, it reflects my writing ability at the time. It reflects the story that I wanted to tell the judgment calls that I made as a writer, as an author. And i think i'm happy with it
0: thank you so much mary like i i loved your book and like you said you you cannot like create something that everyone will love but as an immigrant azerbaijani as a woman i felt a lot of connection to the main character although like i said geographically she's somewhere else and i am somewhere else and uh, different circumstances and everything but i i still think that immigrant experience is so similar for all of us, like the same, uh, struggle of trying to fit in and trying to not miss your home and trying to build a new home. Uh, so it just, I love the book and I'm so grateful to be able to interview you and to get to know you personally. Um, is there anything else you would like to mention before we say goodbye?
1: Ah, oh, well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I've had a lot of i have had a a lot of interviews uh, mainly dedicated to the book and as an author um you always wonder if you were able to fully open up Uh, and i definitely did um so that's completely to your credit i'm really grateful i loved the podcast format hopefully i'll have more of these i want to wish you all the best and i want to end with a with an invitation to come visit baku i will Personally, introduce you to the city that I have been walking around. I've been wandering around for a year trying to reconnect. So I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'll be happy to, to help you get reintroduced to Baku.
0: You know, I will definitely reach out to you now that you promised and it's, uh, publicly. <laughs> I will not let you go. <laughs> I'm so happy to meet so many young modern, um, contemporary whether it's like writers or artists in azerbaijan it makes me so proud that like our community is growing expanding and achieving things like every time one azerbaijani achieves something i feel like it's my family member that achieves something you know what i mean yeah you know
1: we're we're a small country but we really you know support each other and i think that sentiment is at its absolute maximum the past 30, as long as the country has been around. So I think if you come here, you'll notice it. There's a different kind of air. Nice. Um, there's something else in the air, some some really positive, transformative power. And the youth here, the your generation, like even the younger generation, they're very hardworking. I find it that, you know, we're in the right path. So waiting for you, just get on a plane. Make Thank you. <laughs> Thank you
0: so much. Chor,
1: Saol. Saol.